Jacob's Wells Media presents Strange Tales from Humble Life by John Ashworth Narrated by John McDonough Preface The reader may rest assured that the narratives contained in this volume are substantially true. To this many persons now living in the neighborhood can testify. The names mentioned are real names, both of persons and places. Some of them have again arisen from my connection with the chapel for the destitute. I am a tradesman and make no pretension to literary ability. I wish to acknowledge the goodness of God and to be very thankful that he condescends to use me in any way as a medium of good to others. And to him my prayer still is, Hold thou my right hand. John Ashworth, Broadfield, Rochdale, January 1st, 1866. Old Abe On the ridge of hills which divide Lancashire from Yorkshire, there is a cluster of huge sandstone rocks called by local tradition Robin Hood's Bed. Standing on these rocks, with the face towards the setting sun, an irregular dale stretches out on the northwest side, about ten miles in length, bounded by broken ravines and uplands, the highest point being Knoll Hill, the south opening out into an extensive level plain. This valley cannot, like those of Savoy, Italy, and Egypt, boast of producing corn and oil and wine, but it can show many stupendous smoking obelisks that for height leave Pompey's pillar and Cleopatra's needle immeasurably behind. The tillers of the soil on these flats and slopes count not their acres by hundreds, Yet their small patches of grazing land yield to the industrious husbandman a moderate competence. This depression among the hills, from its farms or factories, claims no special notice, but the historian will yet mark it out as a place of some celebrity. We think not of the Vale of Avon, or the plains of Troy, without their immortal bards, and this valley, in coming years, will find its chief renown from being the home and birthplace of one of England's powerful tribunes. Many years ago, but yet within the memory of persons still alive, an unpretending carriage, with a trusty driver and steady horse, not for the first time, entered this valley at the southwest end and the sole occupant of the humble vehicle was a thin but hale old man. This grey-haired veteran, grown grey in his master's service, came with a weighty message to the whole of the inhabitants of this valley. Electric telegraphs were then unknown, but at the sight of this aged ambassador intelligence flew fast before him. The village blacksmith, the peddler, the wayside stone-breaker shouted out, "'Wesley is come!' The grocer, draper, and saddler, forgetting their customers, greeted each other with the shout, "'Wesley is come!' 
As he neared the town, many voices loudly proclaimed the welcome news that Wesley was come. On went the driver at a very safe speed, until he arrived at the old clock-face, a small public house in a narrow part of the town called Blackwater Street. But being the wakes, the stables at the clock-face were all occupied, and John Wesley's horse had to be stalled in the bottom room of a tin-plate worker's shop in White Bear Yard, belonging to James Hamilton. One of the tin-plate workmen, who, through a former visit of Wesley to Rochdale, had become a greatly changed man, was wonderfully proud to have Wesley's horse in the shop near his bench. He patted his neck, stroked him down, and gave him plenty of corn and oat-cake. A woman from the country came with a broken tin roller, used in the spinning of woolen, to be repaired, and told the man she would call again in an hour, and he must be sure to have it ready. She called, but the roller had not been touched. She was very wroth, and spoke in strong terms to the workman. His reply was, "'Mistress, this is Mr. Wesley's horse, and I have to attend to him. I am so proud of seeing anything belonging to a man that has been so great a blessing to me. But this only increased the rage of the woman, who roared out, Hang you and Wesley too! I wish he had the tin roller in his throat! Well, well, quietly replied the man. Mr. Wesley is just now going to preach in the chapel in Toad Lane, at the end of High Street. If you will go and hear him, I will have your roller ready when you come back. I will go and look at the chap, but I shall not stop long to hear him talk. I have something else to do, was her answer. Being a determined character, the woman pushed her way through the crowd and got near the pulpit. She heard and trembled and wept, and with many others fell on her knees, crying, What must I do to be saved? The amazing unction and influence attending the preaching of Whitfield and Wesley in churches, chapels, barns, streets, lanes, fields, or marketplaces was marvelous. Scenes greatly resembling the day of Pentecost were often witnessed. After one open-air service at Moorfields, Whitfield had one thousand persons giving in their names as anxious inquirers after salvation. When souls are saved, it still is, and ever will be, by the descent of the Holy Ghost, and nothing but Christ exalted can bring the converting spirit down. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, forever settles the true work of the ministry. Wesley and Whitfield knew and felt this. Baptized with the Holy Spirit themselves, they preached salvation by faith in Christ. Multitudes believed, and the woman that wished the tin roller in Wesley's throat was one and the subject of this narrative was indirectly another. In those days, 
Many of the inhabitants of this valley, as in most parts of England, were in great spiritual darkness. Places of worship were few and far between. Books were rare things. Sunday or other schools, except in favoured places, did not exist. Not one in fifty could read, and where the people assembled for worship, that they might be able to sing, the hymns were read out in two lines, and sometimes only in one. At one of these gatherings, two young married countrywomen believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved, and one of them was the wife of Abraham, better known as Abe, the subject of this narrative. With intense earnestness she told her husband, and besought him to seek for pardon and peace, that they might rejoice together. He heard her with astonishment, and trembled from head to foot. A few days after, a minister came to preach in the neighborhood, and she urged her husband to go, but could not prevail. Putting the child in the cradle, she requested him to rock while she went out. She ran to the service, but the thoughts of her child disturbed her, and before it was over she ran back. Ere she got home, the baby had waked up and began to cry as loud as a three-month-old baby could cry. Her giant of a husband, a giant in bone and stature, lifted the little thing out of the cradle and began to walk across the floor, quietly swinging it up and down, saying, "'Husht, child! Husht! Do husht! Bless thee, child! Do be quiet, for I cannot bide to hear thee cry!' Hushed wilt ta, Bebo, 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 when thy mother comes home, why not I thrash her? Bo, be, bo, be, hushed, child, do hushed, thou makes me sweat. Just then the mother arrived, and taking hold of the child said, He, lad, I wish thou had heard yon mon preach. Thou never heard not like it, no, never. I wish thou had gone. The way in which this was spoken softened down the ire of her tall husband, for his conscience had begun to trouble him. He knew his wife was daily praying for his salvation, and he had several times promised he would go to chapel some time. One evening, without telling her of his purpose, he went to Union Street Chapel in Rochdale. The place was crowded, but he got into one corner, with eyes and ears open, and he that night witnessed scenes and heard words that stirred his soul and alarmed his guilty conscience. During the singing of one hymn, he was wrought to such a pitch of agony that he called out, Murder! Murder! not knowing what he said. In this state of mind, he set off towards home. It was a stormy winter evening. The snow was piled up in large drifts, covering high thorn hedges, and in many places blocking up the road. He cared little for the storm. He went until he began to ascend a by-lane behind Norden, then falling on his knees with his face against a wall of snow, he began to cry for mercy. Long he knelt, 
and long he cried, cried until his hot breath melted a hole in the drifted snow. God heard that cry, saw his sorrow for sin, and spoke peace to his soul. Up he sprang, and lifting both hands, clapped them over his head, and shouted for joy, then rushed on through every obstacle. On arriving at home, he threw wide open the door, and again shouted, Lass! Lass! I am saved! I am saved! God has saved my soul in a snowdrift! Glory! Glory! Did Abraham's afterlife confirm the rapturous declaration of that evening? Did it manifest to beholders that the change was genuine? Yes, it did. It was not the mere outburst of an excited imagination, a momentary flash of wildfire, ecstasies of the new birth. He had heard men preach who preached for souls, and the gospel of Christ was the power of God to his salvation. Oaths and curses gave way to prayers and praises, and tap-room brawls to chapel songs, and louder songs have hardly ever come from mortal throat. But in all new converts, especially such ardent souls as Abraham's, the old and new man have often desperate battles. Old tempers and old habits fight hard to keep their place, or return after being driven out, and nothing but watching and prayer can defeat them. This neglected, the house is empty, the wicked spirit bringing others more wicked will come back, and the last end of that man will be worse than the first. Abraham had many of these conflicts between grace and sin. One of his besetments was hunting. At the cry of the hounds, he would leave his work and run half-naked up hill down dale, shouting and howling louder than the bay of the dogs or the huntsman's horn, the boldest of all the four-legged or two-legged animals, yelling, panting, and blowing to catch the little, beautiful, timid, trembling hare, and called it noble sport. The sport often ended amongst ale-pots, rum-casks, and in sore bones. After his conversion, he one day heard the hounds. He tried to keep back, but tried in his own strength, which always fails. Away he went, over hedge and ditch, shouting loud as ever. Several of the old hunters laughed heartily when they saw him. One of them called out, "'Amen, Abe! Amen!' Abe was very dejected that evening when he returned home. He knew he had disgraced himself. He dared not look his wife in the face. He became so miserable that he went down to Rochdale to ask the minister, Mr. Bogey, what he must do. The minister told him to pray for more strength, to resist all temptation to any sin and God would help him. After that, he hallowed to the hounds no more. To see a giant of a man, married and a father, who could not say his ABC, 
would seem strange to the children of our Sunday schools now. But so it was with Abraham. He got a little spelling book and went amongst his neighbors to get someone to teach him to read, but none of them could. There was only one Sunday school in the neighborhood, and it was three miles away. This first Sunday school was begun by James Hamilton of Rochdale in 1784, in the same room down the White Bear Yard in which Mr. Wesley's horse was stabled on the night before mentioned. Mr. Hamilton wrote to Robert Rakes for instruction about Sunday schools. Mr. Rakes advised him to get the children together and teach them to read and write, and, as often as possible, take them to some place of worship. Mr. Hamilton began the first Sunday with six scholars, and the second with thirteen. An acquaintance of his, John Croft, asked him why he took the children into his tin-shop on the Sabbath, and when informed that it was a Sunday school, he requested permission to become a teacher. The ninth Sunday there were twenty-three scholars, and then, as recommended by Mr. Rakes, they took them in procession to the parish church. When they got to the door, the beadle, with his red collar and long black staff and silver knob, sternly refused them admittance. James Hamilton told him it was a Sunday school, and they must be admitted. This enraged the mighty beadle, and he took out the handcuffs, at the sight of which John Croft took to his heels down the one hundred and twenty-two steps. But Hamilton stood firm. The beadle then shut and locked the door and ran to the vicar, old Dr. Ray, to tell him that two men had brought a lot of dirty children that they called a Sunday school, and were determined to go into the church, and he was determined they should not. The vicar, scratching his wig, said, Put them in some corner out of sight. It would be a large corner that would hold that same school now, for it numbers twelve hundred, and many thousands more are taught in the valley not only to read, but their way to a better world. But if Abraham could not then read, he had the organs of both tune and sound, and could sing with uncommon power. I remember him when I was a boy in the school, a school and place of worship built by several who, like Abraham, had received the gospel, all helping with hand and pocket, he was then about fifty years of age, and sat in one corner of the singing-pew, with his face towards the pulpit, his mouth and ears open to catch the words. He was not the leading singer, but he did lead with a vengeance. Clarinets and fiddles, bassoons and trumpets, all had to go at his speed, often to the mortification of the professionals. High above all instruments sounded his voice. He sang aloud for joy. Many said that Abraham's religion was all noise and sound. But I thought he had more religion than all the people in the chapel.
After his conversion, he joined the church at Bagsleet, and in the weak evenings met in class with Samuel Standing of Tenterhouse, and several years after, the church having greatly increased, he was requested to take charge of a class himself. One reason why the Wesleyan Church in one single century has become so vast, both in numbers, power, and influence, is that all grades of talent are set to work. One talent, two, or five are all employed according to their several abilities, either as preachers, leaders, or Sunday school teachers. Zeal and knowledge have here a wide field. The calm, thoughtful logician, the cold, phlegmatic reasoner, the cautious, pathetic pleader, the burning, fiery orator, the shouting, stamping, Bible-thumper, all have their mission, all have their followers and admirers, and thus all idiosyncrasies are met from the highest intellect to the lowest, and from this has grown up that gigantic section of the Christian church. Abraham knew nothing of circumlocution. His sententious, terse, and pointed speeches in the love feast and class, both before and after he became leader, were retailed throughout the neighborhood, and are remembered by many to this day. He was always serious, and however others might laugh at his laconics, he himself was in sober earnest. Amongst many other rough, wicked, and daring characters that were gathered into the church from the hills and valleys of Norden was his brother Joseph. Seeing him in one of their meetings, he shouted out, "Hey, Joe, lad! What a mercy it is that thee and me are here! Before God saved our souls, we were both wild as March hares and ragged as filly foals. If the grace of God had not stopped us, we might have been in hell, burning like two breek. One evening in his class, he said, Friends, my soul is filled as full of love as a shoddy bag. As I come over the fields, I shouted glory so loud that sheep and cows all stared at me. I shouted louder than when I went a-hunting, for I had far more need to shout the praises of Jesus Christ than shout after hunting dogs. A poor man in his class that had been some time without work and had several of his family sick, expressing his gladness that the Lord had promised to deliver in the day of trouble. Abraham replied, if thou had to take thy troubles and poverty to some big man, and ask him to help thee, thou would have to go to the back door, and mind the dog-kennel. A servant would ask what thou wanted, then tell another servant, then the butler, then the master, and he might be engaged, and thee told to come again some time else. But when thou brings thy troubles to Jesus, thou art not stopped with yard doors, dog kennels, servants, nor butlers, but thou may go straight to him, 
and he will make thee welcome. Glory, glory, glory. One of his members, who was prospering in worldly things, spoke of the difficulty of keeping humble. Abe replied, I am the most humble, and think of God best when me stomach's empty, and I think sometime God lets it be empty to keep me right till I'm better rooted and grounded. At one church meeting, several thought that there were signs of a revival, and that prayer meetings ought to be held. One speaker said it would only be a burning of candles to no use. Abe said, "'Candles against souls! Candles against souls! That caps all! A soul saved is worth all the candles in the world! I'll find candles! I'll find candles!' After Abraham joined the church, one weakness long troubled him. He was hot-tempered, soon provoked, and could say stinging words, and so grieved many. He had often to mourn and weep over this failing. He would sometimes confess his infirmity, and ask his friends to bear with him. Referring to his grievous fault in one meeting, he said, "'Friends!' I think my temper mends a bit. The donkey kicked milk cans off yesterday, and I did not fly in a passion. I have seen the day when I should have killed it on the spot. That he had much to try his temper must be admitted. His good little wife soon presented him with a pack of hungry children, seventeen in all. Cotton-weaving was then their principal support, for he was not then a farmer, and it was one continued struggle for very existence. The scanty, well-patched, but clean clothing of father, mother, and children, as they appeared in the chapel and school, told of thrift and poverty. What a mercy to those children that their parents were Christians, that they were led by them from their childhood to the Sunday school and the house of God, led, not driven, taken, not sent. Many parents drive and send their children to a place of worship, but go not themselves. Such parents need not be surprised if the child in after life should copy the example and reject the precept and it is well for families attending the sanctuary when the pew and fireside harmonize, when all the religion is in the church on Sunday and none at home on Monday, it is a poor lookout for the young ones, or the old ones either. My long residence in the town has never lessened my love for the country, the restless toils of anxious business find a healthy antidote on the mount and in the wild wilderness, where tiny streams sing their soft songs to shining pebbles. To climb the smooth or rugged steep that brings to view the outstretched landscape where distance fades and sky and mountain meet, 
gives to overwrought nerves, morbid feelings or languid circulation, new life and active energies. This love of rural walks and country scenes has often led me to our neighbouring hills and dales. In one of these walks I found myself climbing amongst the purple heath and sheep tracks of Ruley Moor and Hungry Hill. I cared little for food when I set out, but about two o'clock in the afternoon, while passing over the last-mentioned and right-named hill, I felt an intense desire for a good dinner. Seeing the roof of a house below my feet, I descended, hoping to find it the home of some hospitable person. Passing through a stone stile, and entering the open farmyard, I was quite delighted to find it was Bank House, and the home of the now old Abe. The aged man sat on a saw-block with an axe in his hand, chopping rotten branches into firewood on the stump of a tree. He was without hat or coat, and his vest wide open. Accosting the old man, I said, "'Could you furnish me with a little bread and buttermilk, sir? "'For I am very hungry.' "'Ah, we can. "'You're in the right shop. "'For we just churnt, "'and I think there's bits of butter in yet, "'and that will mend it.' "'He then called aloud, "'Anne, Anne, get this gentleman some milk and bread.' The day being fine, I sat down on a strong stone bench beneath the window, on one end of which stood two inverted large cans used for carrying milk to the town. Anne, his aged partner, very soon brought me a nice white round loaf, a print of fresh-made butter, and a neat jug of rich, mellow buttermilk, which made me think I was in the right shop. Just then, a large sheepdog came bounding from the barn, barking in rage and fury, his hair behind his neck standing straight up. But the old farmer shouted out, "'Come out, dog! Come out, Wilter!' I thought, now is my time for opening conversation.' "'for I longed to begin with the old man. "'So I said, "'Let dogs delight to bark and bite, "'for God hath made them so.' "'The old man paused from breaking chips, "'and without lifting up his head observed, "'Is that not election, sir? "'Is that not election? "'But happen you don't care aught about it.' "'It is one of Watts' songs for children,' I replied. "'Watts was a sweet singer for young or old.' "'Which is best, poet? "'Watts or Wesley, do you think? "'Some say one, and some say another. "'What do you say? "'Don't you know Wesley once preached in this house, "'standing in the old oak staircase? "'But happen... "'You don't care about it?' old Abraham again observed. "'Well, sir,' 
I replied, I think the Lord raised up and inspired both Wesley and Watts to write hymns for his children. Millions that are gone home to brighter climes have sung them, and millions yet unborn shall sing them. Watts wrote more for meek, timid, doubting, but true Christians, who feel their weakness and unworthiness, who, fearing to say too much, often say too little. These sing from his hymns, When I can read my title clear to mansions in the skies, I'll bid farewell to every fear and wipe my weeping eyes. The moment I finished this verse, Abraham started up from the saw-block and called out, Anne! Anne! Do come out, lass! And hear this man talk! My wife's a timid Christian, but bless her, who's a good'un? Anne came to the door with tears in her eyes. She had heard all, for she was in the porch, looking on and hearkening. But he did not see her. Going on with my comparison, I observed, Wesley wrote for bolder and more daring Christians, men whose ardent souls were best stirred by strong, nervous language, such as, My God, I am thine, what a comfort divine, what a blessing to know that my Jesus is mine. In the heavenly Lamb thrice blessed I am, and my heart it doth dance, at the sound of his name. Before quoting that verse, I had risen to my feet to give it all the force I possibly could. The old man stretched himself with the axe in one hand and the chip in the other, then raising them straight up over his head and looking up into the clear blue sky, with all his might he shouted, Glory! 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 That's me! That's me! My God, I am thine for sure. Glory, glory, and our Anne's thine too. But who does not make as big a noise about it as I do? While the old farmer was so lustily shouting, the sheepdog began scampering about the yard, yelling and barking, while Anne, the dear aged partner of his joys and sorrows, laughed through her tears. Before leaving, and while I stood betwixt the two aged pilgrims, with our faces towards the valley that stretched out to Tandle Hills and the Yorkshire boundaries, I gave out one of those hymns I knew they could both sing. Looking into the calm, serene heavens, we all sang together, there we shall see his face, and never, never seen, and from the rivers of his grace drink endless pleasures in. Yea, and before we rise to that immortal state, the thoughts of such amazing bliss should constant joys create. The old man stopped singing and sobbed for joy. His dear old wife joined me in tremulous voice. To us all it was a moment of deep, unspeakable bliss, a bliss which none but Christians know.
As I passed out at the gate to resume my walk, they both watched me ascend the hill, and the last words I heard were, God bless you, us who you are, you and stirred up my old soul above a bit. Abraham's religion was not all noise and sound. The blessing he found in the snowdrift fifty years before safely guarded him through a long life, and now he, with his faithful Anne, are with the other Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the spirits of just men made perfect, enjoying that amazing bliss of which we that day sang.' 